Amen. Man, it's like having 15th Avenue back in here, isn't it, Bill? <laughs> I didn't know there was a B3 setting on there, Nate. Where'd you find that? That's great. <laughs> I talked to Judy after choir practice on Wednesday night. I said, y'all ready? She said, no, I don't know. We're doing this rock and roll song. <laughs> I said, really? And, uh, man, they, you know, we're told in Scripture to gather together and to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And that's a spiritual song, and I'm, I'm so thankful for it and the, the legacy of music that we have from the African-American church uh, in this nation. What a gift uh, that we've been given. Uh, the blood will never lose its power to rescue even you and even me, which is an amazing thing. We are walking through 1 Corinthians today. We're going to continue in chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 12 to 34. Again, this is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture because it's so hopeful. And I feel like the church has lost a lot of the theology that is taught in this chapter that we need to recover and regain. You know, there's so many college students here uh, today. I wanna encourage y'all, whether you go to Woodmont or not, keep going to church. Get out of bed Sunday morning. Kudos to you on your first Sunday in town, going to church, but keep doing it, whether it's Woodmont or somewhere else. Be in a part of a church. Avery, what a difference church has made in your life in Chattanooga. What are you this year, a junior? A junior, and she got plugged in in the church and it's made all the difference in the world. And I wanna encourage you guys just to keep plugging in because you, you begin to become part of a family of faith that forms you and shapes you. And, and what I've seen is for college students, it's a weird time. You freshmen, you know, hopefully will have a normal college experience, but Avery, your experience was not normal. When you went as a freshman, everybody was in mask, everybody was online, everybody was distancing. It was a, a weird time to be in college for a lot of our students. Uh, but, but now things, you know, we're learning how to live with this pandemic. But one, one of the things we've seen is that the, the pandemic has exposed other underlying issues in our culture. And one of the worst things about COVID is that it's kind of given us another plague. There's, if it wasn't bad enough to have this terrible virus going around, we now have a, a pandemic of hopelessness. We have a pandemic of hopelessness. More people than ever are struggling to, to find hope, to believe that this is going somewhere good, to believe that their lives are going somewhere positive. They struggle to find purpose. They struggle to find meaning in their lives. There's no reason for so many people to get out of bed in the morning. And I, I don't want this to sound trite or reductionistic, and I know I'm the preacher, so I'm supposed to say this, but I really believe in my heart of hearts that what God offers us in Christ Jesus is precisely the hope that our world desperately needs. It's the kind of hope that transforms who we are and, and how we then live. It's the only true hope. Someone told me, I don't know where they pulled this statistic, but someone told me that up to 30,000 cars go by our church every day on Hillsborough Road. I probably drove by this church a thousand times growing up here in Nashville before I set foot here in June of 2016 to preach for the first time. And when I look at these cars sometimes, when I'm walking out to my car, I think about how many of those drivers are searching, how many of them are longing, how many of them are looking for hope, 
How many of them have no reason to get out of bed? How many of them are living for this life only and have found that life has not gone, of course, as they thought that it would? I wish I could tell them about the life giving the sovereign grace of God that is working death and sin and all things evil backwards. It is undoing everything that is wrong in our world. I wanna tell them that this is all heading somewhere and that somewhere is good because God is sovereign and he is good. And where this is going is better than they could even imagine. So our text for today is one of the most hopeful texts, I think, in all of scripture, giving us true hope. So I ask that you stand in honor of God's word as I read our text for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers and sisters, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may have a seat. 
You know, there's a, a silly cartoon show that my family loves to watch. We, we watched it last night all together on the couch, and we're just rolling, laughing, all of us. Uh, it's called Bluey. Anybody seen Bluey? Yeah, Yarbros, y'all are in that stage. Snellens, absolutely. Uh, Bluey is from Australia. It's an Australian show, and sometimes when they bring Australian shows over, they have Americans overdub the, the voices, which is terrible, because I love the Australian accent. This one, they've just left it alone, and it's about a family of dogs that talk, and that's, that's how cartoons work, you know, but uh, I don't know if the creator and the writers of the show are Christians or not, but I constantly see themes that are deeply biblical and deeply gospel-centric in the show Bluey. For example, in the camping episode, they all have these, you know, small titles. In the episode called Camping, uh, the, the oldest daughter uh, goes camping and she meets a friend from France, Jean-Luc, and they don't speak the same language, but they end up playing together, and they have a great time, and they're able to communicate as kids do, and, and then when it's time for them to say goodbye, Bluey's sad, and she says to her mom, Mom, will I ever see him again? And her wise mother says, well, I don't know. The world is a magical place. The world is a magical place. And I hear that and I think, yes, Christians indeed know that the world is a magical place filled with miracles, filled with mystery and awe and wonder of the Holy Spirit enacting God's plans in our world. The Christian poet Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. But for a lot of people, the world is only a cold, and cruel and calculating place filled with pain and suffering. How can we as Christians say, no, 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 the world is full of magic. The world is full of awe. The world is full of, of wonder and mystery at what God is doing and at who he is. How can we say that? It's because we have resurrection hope. We get to live on this side of the most important event that ever happened in the history of everything ever, the, the resurrection of the Son of God. How grateful should we be that we get to live on this side of the resurrection? That was the day that the world changed forever and nothing will be the same. Jesus' resurrection inaugurates this whole new era in which our hope is now confirmed. I often quote one of my favorite books on this chapter, on this topic, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. I love it. He says that Jesus' resurrection was the moment when hope came forward from the future into the present. In that book, he spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, certainly Paul shares the view of the Old Testament prophets that God will one day flood the world with justice and joy. And this has already begun to be fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. But many Christians miss the, the point of 1 Corinthians 15. They miss what the, the Old Testament prophets were pointing to. They're pointing towards resurrection hope. A lot of Christians think the ultimate hope that the gospel gives us is that one glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away, that I'll just get out of here and escape, and, and, and Jesus died so I can go to heaven, and that's the end of the story. 
the only hope they have for this life is that Jesus somehow will make them feel better. Like if their dog dies, like Jesus will comfort them and he might help them study for a test or something. You, you students, that's, that's kind of how they see Jesus as maybe a cosmic butler who can kind of get them things if they need things, but that's not really hope. N.T. Wright says, what we have at the moment isn't as the old liturgies used to say, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead, but a vague and fuzzy optimism that things will somehow work out in the end. We kind of have a vague and fuzzy optimism. Yeah, I think Jesus is gonna, you know, kind of take care of things. But the old liturgies used to say, we have a sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. So today I want us to understand that we can have that sure and certain hope that there is life, life abundant, freely available to us now and in the next life and in the next. What, what do I mean by that? We'll get to that. Our outline today is called Real Hope, How the Resurrection Frees Us to Live with the End in Mind. Real Hope. First, the apostle Paul is dealing with these young believers, not young age-wise, but they're new Christians who are young in their faith. And these, these Christians in Corinth are going along with the Greek culture that they live in, and they're denying that there's such thing as bodily life after death. Only, you know, crazy people believe that dead people can come to life. Sure, Jesus rose. They say that in the creed that we read last week in the first uh, 11 verses of chapter 15, but they don't think that that could happen to anyone else besides Jesus. But here's the thing. Resurrection means bodily life after death. And there's no real hope apart from the promise of resurrection. There is no real hope apart from bodily rising from the dead. Our hope has to be grounded in bodily resurrection. Not just Jesus rising from the dead. This is where it gets a little crazy, okay? You college students are never coming back, probably. Uh, it's, it's about our resurrection, too. It's about our bodily resurrection. This is where I lose some people. There is life after death. We believe that, right? As Christians, there's life after death. But what Paul's talking about here is life after life after death. Life after life after death. One glad morning, not fly away. One glad morning, we will rise. One glad morning, we will rise physically. Our baptism was, in one sense, a preview of that day when we will be resurrected just like Christ was resurrected. Here's the thing. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament clearly teach about a new physical creation in which we will dwell forever. We, we, this is not about uh, going to heaven. This is about heaven coming here, a new creation. When Jesus returns to make all things new, there will be a physical resurrection from the dead. And you may say, that's crazy, Nathan. What, what about people who are cremated? How can they be resurrected? Well, if someone's been dead for a few hundred years or a thousand years or whatever, God can do it, okay? I believe God can do it just like he can for anybody. That may sound, again, like a weird teaching, like zombies or something, but here's the thing. It's only been the last hundred years or so that the church has lost this teaching of bodily resurrection. You don't hear about it a lot 
uh, anymore because we're rational people in an age of enlightenment. But it's really important. It's crucially important to get this part right because it's the end of the story. It's where all this is heading. And we have to know the end of the story is not just that we go to heaven when we die, but the end of the story is that Jesus comes back and makes all things new. Heaven is not where we will spend eternity. <laughs> you probably no preacher in town is saying that today. Heaven is not where we will spend eternity. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells us. Revelation 21, verse 1. This is elsewhere, but here's one example. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Heaven will pass away. We used to sing the old spiritual, Jesus, Jesus, there's something about that name. Heaven and earth shall all pass away, but there's something about that name. You know that song? Right? Heaven will pass away. That's not where we're going to spend eternity. Heaven is not purgatory. I'm not talking about purgatory. That's an unbiblical doctrine. I'm not talking about purgatory. Okay, I've said it before. I don't love heart music. People who think of heaven as floating around like angels on clouds playing harps. Harps are cool, I guess. Rachel played the harp for a while, right? That's, that's I, yeah, a little bit. Okay, we're not gonna have you play any, okay, not anytime soon. Uh, but, but harps are cool, but like, I think that'd be a fun hobby for like a month, maybe, a year. But 10,000 years, I don't want any part of that. That's not real hope. Real hope is found in resurrection, in restoration, in renewal of all things. Look at verses 16 to 18 again. For if the dead are not raised, meaning if there's not bodily life after the state of death, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That means it's worthless, it's meaningless, it's empty of power. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Yes, Jesus' blood has power to save us, but his resurrection, without the resurrection, that blood is futile. It needs both, Jesus' atoning death on the cross and his victory over death forever and bodily resurrection. Before we continue, okay, you may say, then what's heaven? Let's explain what heaven is, okay? Paul clearly shows us in other texts that he believes that when you die, we believe that, that Jan Region is with the Lord. Why do we believe that? Because the Bible tells us that. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When Christians' bodies die, they are present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be with the Lord for Christians. Philippians 1.21, you know this, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. How could death be gain? Verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. When we depart this body, we are with Christ. Jesus told the, the thief on the cross next to him in Luke 23.43, you'll be with me in paradise. When I return, no. When, when will you be with me in paradise? Today. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. But paradise is not really life after death. 
It is life after death, but it's not bodily life after death. Yes, we are with the Lord. Yes, we're with those who've gone before us. It's life, but it's, it's a disembodied life. Wright says that the resurrection is really life after life after death, bodily life after spiritual life after death. That's a real embodied hope. And Paul reminds us this has always been the plan. This is nothing new. An embodied life after death in a new creation is what all the Hebrew scriptures were pointing us to all along as our final hope. Isaiah wrote this 800 years before Jesus showed up on the scene and took on flesh. Isaiah 65, 17 and 18 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things, including heaven, shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Barah in Hebrew, only God barahs. In the beginning, God barahed the heavens and the earth. God's going to barah again as he forms physically a, a new creation out of the old creation. A new heaven, a new earth, that's where we will spend eternity and it will be better than anything you've ever imagined. Point two on our outline is that the resurrection is a key part of God's plan in the grand narrative of the whole Bible. The story of everything ever that's told from Genesis to Revelation that contains our part right now in this story, resurrection is the center point of this story. The conclusion of the story that, that God has been writing is, is resurrection. It's new life, embodied life in a new creation. Look at verses 23 to 26 again here in chapter 15. Paul's not prophesying here so much as he is interpreting the Hebrew scriptures through the lens of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's plan is that Jesus was raised first, then we will be raised, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. These are those powers and principalities, you know, systemic sin that has invaded our earth. He's going to destroy all those, for he must reign, verse 25, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. A footstool, right? His enemies will become a footstool. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The word for destroyed here in Greek is katargeo, and it means, usually it's translated as annihilated, completely vaporized, brought to nothing, rendered into absence. The lordship of Christ will be complete. All the other competitors, all the other truth claims are going to be annihilated. As the old hymn says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. The last enemy to be annihilated is the worst one, death. The Christian and Hebrew Jewish versions of death, our understanding of death, is very different from how the Greeks in Corinth understood death. 
The ancient Greeks welcomed death as a release of the soul from the body, as a, a welcome liberation of a good spirit from a bad body. That's not the, the view that we have in Scripture. The Bible says that we are holistic creatures, mind, body, and soul. So when our bodies and our minds cease to function, it's a, it's a disruption, it's a, a breaking, a fracturing of that holistic life. Death is, is the worst thing in the world. Death is the worst thing in the world. We have a grief share group meeting tonight, this afternoon at four o'clock. Invite you to be part of that. It's a special time to journey together through grief because death is the worst thing in the world. We don't hate death enough, I don't think. Death is the worst thing. We know that when Adam and Eve chose their way over God's way, death entered the world and plunged the world into darkness and to decay. But here's the thing, we know that resurrection is coming. And that means death itself will die. Death itself will be defeated. As Romans 8, 21 and 23, uh, put it, we now have hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits from the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies will be redeemed. It was really interesting to hear deacon ordination uh, this past uh, year, a year ago, uh, two of our deacons who were born with physical problems and how God has used those physical problems in their lives as part of their stories. And yet one day God will restore us physically completely. As Lil works with our senior adults, you know, it's, it's hard, they know that outwardly they are wasting away, just like we all are, but they know it acutely. And one day we know that Jesus is gonna make us new completely from the inside out, including new bodies. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Point number three on your outline, let's live with God's reality in mind. Let's live knowing the end. When you watch a football game that you DVR'd and you know who wins, you're able to live with confidence. You're not anxious, you're not freaking out. You're able to know it's gonna be okay in the end if your team won, and we know that our team wins. First, let me just make a quick comment on verse 29. It sounds crazy. Scholars disagree on, on what Paul is saying here when he says some people are being baptized on behalf of the dead. Maybe it means that people were uh, baptized on behalf of someone who professed faith in Christ but didn't have a chance to get baptized. In the early church, they'd only you know, baptize maybe once a year, like at Easter or something. Maybe that's what happened. Or maybe it meant that uh, our bodies, which are prone to death and decay, have been now baptized. We don't know what it means, but the bottom line is that baptism identifies us with Christ's death and with his resurrection. And we know there's no salvation outside of personal faith in Christ Jesus. I know our, our Mormon friends practice vicarious baptism, they call it, on behalf of family members who are not believers. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible's saying here. So what difference does 
knowing the resurrection make in our daily lives? In verse 30, Paul says, we're in danger every hour. Have you driven on I-40 lately or 440? I mean, we're in danger every hour. One of our leaders was telling this morning, she saw a wreck and called the highway patrol uh, this week. It's dangerous. Verse 31, Paul says that he dies every day, meaning that in his ministry, he courts fatality every day. We, we can now live that way in confidence, attempting great things for God. I think about the, the five men, who Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and, and those guys that went to the, the Amazon in the 50s to, to evangelize the, the tribes who lived there. They attempted great things for God. And they expected great things from God, confident that death was not an obstacle to their work. We can face death without fear because we know where all this is going. It's going towards resurrection. It also means that we don't have to worry over the fragility of our feeble bodies that are outwardly wasting away. Yes, pain is, is real and we, we grieve the loss of physical capabilities, but we don't have to fear that our bodies are wasting away. And it also means that we can have a right understanding of what really matters in this life as, as C.T. Studd, the British missionary, put it, I quote this all the time too, I love it, only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So many people live the way that Paul warns us not to live in verse 33. He says, bad company ruins good morals. Being seduced by our peer groups is a very real thing, not just for my middle school son, but for all of us. These people don't have an eternal perspective. They don't live with the end in mind. We're surrounded by people like that, that can ruin our good morals with an eternal perspective. Paul explains in verse 34, those people don't have any knowledge of God. We do. We have his revelation to us in his word. We get to live on this side of the cross knowing what God's plan is. Some of us need to wake up from our stupor. We've been seduced by our peer groups. Some of us need to wake up and live with the end in mind. Our job now is to wake up to reality, to reality as God sets it. Our job is to live like we actually believe this. Is Jesus really coming back? Is Jesus really going to make all things New. Are our bodies really going to be redeemed and, and rise at a great day of renewal? Maybe you don't really believe this in your heart. I think this text is saying if you don't really believe this, your whole Christian faith is in danger of being futile, of being vain, of being empty. Maybe today you don't really believe in a God big enough to do this. It sounds too crazy for your rational mind. Paul says that if the resurrection isn't true, if our resurrection isn't true, then we are, of all people, most of all, to be pitied. But if it is true, then it's the opposite. We are people who are not to be pitied at all. We're what everybody aspires to be. People who live in settled, confident hope. Ron Landis was telling us about when his mom was diagnosed with a sickness, his siblings were freaking out and they don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. And they were like, Ron, why aren't you more concerned? He's like, I know where she's going. I know where all this is going. You know, it's not the end. 
It's not the end. It's going to be okay no matter what happens. That changes how we live, doesn't it? We are not to be pitied at all. Finally, the resurrection is not something just to sit back and wait passively for. We participate in it now. We've already been raised spiritually with Christ in baptism, for those of you who've been baptized, and there's work to do. We, the resurrected people of God, have a mission. And it's not just about going to heaven and taking as many people with us as we can. That's part of it. But one last quote from N.T. Wright. He says, people who believe in the resurrection, in God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. Isn't that good? People who believe this stuff, who believe in the resurrection, are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world now. May God's kingdom come. May his will be done on earth as it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you give us this word of hope. God, we know that so many people in our world are in a tailspin of hopelessness. They don't see how you could be real. They don't see how you could be actually ordaining what's happening in this world. All they see is hurt and all they see is pain. And God, we know that, that grief and pain are so real in our world and we've all experienced those things these last few years. We've grieved the loss of so many things. And God, yet you give us this word of hope that no matter how bad things get in our world, it's all going somewhere good. That in the end, you will cause us to be made new physically and spiritually. God, we thank you for the word that tells us that death is not the end. That, that as we grieve those who've gone on, we grieve not as those without hope. We grieve knowing that death doesn't get the last word, but you do. That one day you will destroy, you will annihilate death itself. God, we long for that day. Lord, we don't know what we're saying, but we pray that you would come quickly. God, we ask that you would come and restore this world back to what you want it to be. Holy, holy, holy. We long to see all the injustices be made right. We long to see those who are in poverty to, to be wealthy. We long to see those who are hungry to be filled. We long for those who are, are victims to see justice. And God, we pray that until that time, you would use us to be your hands and feet, to, to feed the hungry, to clothe those who need it, to, to be able to share good news of hope and healing in the only place that truly can be found. God, we pray for those who are struggling today <clears throat> with their own hopelessness. God, we know that this world, we do have very real tribulation, but you have told us to take heart that though we have tribulation in this world, you have overcome this world. God, we long for that day when our Lord Jesus will reign with his enemies as a footstool for him. We long to see all those enemies in our world that cause such havoc and destruction to be rendered to nothing but a footstool for Jesus. 
But until that day, O Lord, may we live with the end in mind. May we not fear death. May we not fear, fear sickness. Although the pain is very real, God, the evil that is in those things cannot touch us because of our hope, real resurrection hope. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.